Our reading for today is from Acts chapter 14. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city, and they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed." This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that. And thank you, uh, Tyler and Sean, for um, that sharing this morning. Really good. Good morning, Redemption. Um, if you're new here today, we are glad that you are here. My name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at this congregation. Uh, Redemption is one church with 10 congregations, and um, that's an exciting a way to be able to do church, but we're locally led in every one of our congregations. Let me add also um, my wish for a happy Father's Day for you. May you be granted a Big Mac and a nap, because we know that that's really what every father wants on his special day. Um, those of you that are new, I don't normally wear a tie. I just Somebody asked this morning if I lost a bet, and I said, no, the Holy Spirit moved. Ooh, yeah. And then I realized and decided that this is actually a, it's a very theological tie. It's a substitutionary tie. I'm wearing this tie so that no other father has to today. So you can just thank me later for that. Um, and thank you, Susan, if you recognize the tie. Thank you. Um, uh, <clears throat> we uh, do this generally around June. Um, not normally on Father's Day, but it was the soonest I was able to get the most updated figures. So we're not going right into the sermon yet. Uh, we need to kind of give you a, a first five months uh, update on where we are financially as a congregation, and so uh, we're going to do that. Um, so, so far through May, this is not including the first few weeks of June, but so far through May, our income as a church is $364,000. That's this congregation, the Arcadia congregation. Uh, we had budgeted $375,000 as income for the uh, first um, five months, so a little bit lower there. Uh, our expenses are $379,000. We had budgeted $372,000, and when we, uh, obviously, we study the P&Ls and want to know why that is, we, we really have zeroed in and kind of knew this was uh, happening since we moved into the property. Uh, our budgeting process for 2017 was actually done in September, and so we hadn't had much history in this, in this property yet. But what's happened is the facilities have, have been costing us a little bit more than we thought uh, in order to manage and operate and, and all of that. And so the, the addition is primarily in the facilities and the personnel area for that. So uh, our gain or loss so far is we, are, we have lost so far in the first five months $15,000. Um, last year, our loss through May was $18,000. So we're actually in a little bit better shape compared to last year. Uh, and, our, and our loss this year is actually a much smaller percentage of the overall um, income. And so um, it, it, I'll get to this, but uh, you know, I get nervous seeing a loss, but I'm also encouraged it's better than last year at this point. 
Uh, and just to let you know, um, we have completed our capital campaign for the money we uh, needed to raise to be able to purchase and, and renovate and move into this property, and that has ended up with uh, collecting $725,000. This does not include uh, the money that's still coming in in June, and so uh, there's some dissonance there in, in the sense that um, we are done with the capital campaign, but that doesn't mean you have to stop giving to the capital campaign, so you, you get that, okay? And we've had some money, actually some pretty strong uh, checks come in after May 31st for the capital campaign, and so that number is actually a little bit higher. We're very thankful for that, and you, you look at where we are now compared to our rental space. We were glad to have that rental space for uh, six and a half, six years, um, but I'll tell you, this has just been magnificent. We are still, I don't know if the new car smell will ever wear off. We still come in and, and just look around and go, we can't believe how blessed we are that, that, we, that God gave us this property right here uh, in the 32nd Street and Camelback area for the gospel to continue to prevail. Uh, based on that financial report, let me just give you some uh, four facts that um, I, I want you to hear. Uh, number one, we are a generous church and we continue to be. I've just always been stunned by how generous uh, this congregation is, and I thank you for that. Um, number two, we usually do close very strong. And what, what does that mean? It means that in November and December, this congregation tends to really take it up, not one notch, but three or four notches. So we do tend to close strong, and that gives me some comfort knowing that there's a loss through the first uh, five months. However, uh, at that same time, I will also let you know that uh, historically, June, July, and August are the worst giving months, not only for our congregation, but for virtually any congregation in Arizona, except for in Flagstaff, if you understand why that might be. <clears throat> Their giving tends to go up. Um, but last year, I, we, had a, we had this report, and it was a little bit more dismal, and it was amazing to see how people responded. We, we had the best June we had ever had uh, in giving. So there is an exception to that. We had a great June last year, but historically, the summer months in, in Phoenix churches are, are, are really very difficult. So uh, but we need to remember that even though people aren't giving as much during the summer, the, the, the non-variable expenses continue. So just remember that. Uh, and then the last one is, is just I, I have a lot of training and, and a lot of experience in the marketplace before I became a pastor. And my business world training combined with my <clears throat> personality, if and you can ask Jackie more about that if you want, um, uh, I have the tendency to really pay attention very closely to these things. I monitor this stuff uh, certainly on a weekly and sometimes even on a, on a daily basis. So I'll just tell you, I get a little nervous about seeing the loss. Uh, we are working at cutting expenses as we did uh, last year. But, but I also, this is probably the most important thing. I really believe in full disclosure. I, I think that congregations should know what's going on. And if this isn't enough detail for you, we'll give you more detail. We are an open book on that. And I've always said I would rather over-communicate on finances than under-communicate, even if for some of you it's too much. I, I would rather make that uh, mistake. So uh, the only thing, other thing I would mention is, is, is if you go away for the summer, as you go away, remember that we're still here and we still are running our expenses. And, uh, but enjoy your summer in the meantime. So... There's our financial update. Now we get to move into Acts. 
Uh, what Ashley read today was uh, verses 19 through 23 of Acts chapter 14. We're going to do all of Acts chapter 14 today. So turn in your uh, Bibles to Acts chapter 14. We're in the third week of a three-week mini-series in the book of Acts. We're, we're doing the entire book of Acts this year. Uh, we're doing the third week of a mini-series where we're looking at the first missionary journey that Paul goes on. The, pretty much the rest of, of the book of Acts focus on, focuses on uh, Paul as the main human character, although it's clear that the main character of the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and in chapter 14, it's interesting, Luke kind of gives us what I would describe as a travel log. Um, but it's not a, a, it's not a junket or a, or a vacation or a tour that very many of us would, would want to sign up for. Uh, when we go, and this is perfectly understandable, when we go on a tour or, or a junket or a, or a vacation or whatever, we want good hotels and nice restaurants and, and we want amazing things to see and we want friendly people and we want good customer service, welcoming customer service. We want our creature comforts. This journey is exactly the opposite. This would be a disaster for most of us, and yet God called them to it. And so you heard Ashley read actually what our big idea is for today. We get it right out of verse 22. Here it is. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And that, please understand, and I'll talk a little bit more about this. Please understand that that, that, that big idea is not, is not prescriptive. In other words, you don't get into the kingdom of God by experiencing many tribulations. It's just a fact that as a follower of Christ, we are going to experience tribulation, trial, trouble, challenges, suffering, temptations. It's just a fact. That's just the way it's going to be. And for those of you who are sitting there right now, you're in a wonderful season of life and thinking, I don't know that that's necessarily true. Just remember, this too shall pass. But for those of you in one of those tougher seasons, remember, this too shall pass. And, and many of you, if you've been here for this Acts series, many of you have kind of gotten used to the pattern that I've been doing where we go through the, the text of the scripture, and then at the end I give you one or two or three or 12 takeaways, whatever it is. We're not going to do that today. The takeaways are going to be embedded as we go through the passage. So um, just listen as we go. We're going to unpack it uh, slowly but surely, and we will get there. So let's go back to the beginning of chapter 14 and start with the first seven verses. Now at Iconium, they, they were in Pisidian Antioch. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, the disciples, and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So they went from Pisidian Antioch to Iconium, which is 90 miles to the east. We have the map again. I love the maps. So we, they started in Antioch of Syria, went down uh, sort of southwest through uh, Cyprus up to Perga. We talked about Pisidian Antioch last week. Now they're in Iconium, which is to the southeast. 
Uh, today, they're, uh, they're going to go also to Lystra, which is 20 miles, just 20 miles south of Iconian, and then 60 miles east to Derby. That's what um, was read in, in the, the passage this morning. So there you can see uh, the, the first missionary journey is completed in a sense. We're also going to find out at the end of this that in Derby, rather than just traveling back to their beginning Antioch over here, they're going to actually go back. And, and, and sort of wa- retrace their steps back, and I'll, I'll mention something about that then. Um, I will mention also that that, that, um, that journey from Lystra to Derby is actually very dangerous. Historically, we've known it's a very dangerous journey. Uh, a lot of robbers, a lot of problems on that way, but they still made that, uh, that journey. And here we see a great example uh, in Iconium of Paul's, what I call his synagogue pattern. Paul says in in his letter to the church at Rome that I I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the good news first to the Jews and then also to the Greeks. He is called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, to the non-Jews, but he does that generally through a pattern where he speaks first to the Jews. And he does that by going into a city and if the city has a synagogue where Jews meet on the Sabbath, he'll go in there. He'll, he'll make sure that people know that a visiting rabbi is there, and, and he'll get a chance to speak in the synagogue after the regular synagogue service, and that's when he begins to present the gospel. And then what generally happens in the pattern is some of the Jews will believe, a lot of the Gentiles will believe, but eventually the Jews who kind of run the synagogue and the Jews in power, they will get very upset with Paul, and they'll kick him out of the synagogue, and then they go and they start house churches, mostly in Gentile homes, but some in Jewish homes and, as well. That's kind of the pattern. And, and I don't believe, it's not in the text anyway, but I don't believe that Paul sat down and said, here's going to be my pattern specifically about going to the Jews first and then the Gentiles, but that's how it's kind of worked out uh, for him. And then you see in verses two and three, I'm going to spend some time on this because I think it's such an odd sentence. They faced opposition and so remained a long time. Anybody else catch that? They're facing opposition, persecution, tribulation, troubles, trials, and yet they remained a long time. Remember, this missionary journey took 18 months. They were there for months, probably, in Iconium. And, 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 and I think we need to kind of unpack this, and it's part of the big idea. Uh, doing the will of God or being in the will of God, a lot of people, a lot of Christians talk about that. Uh, What we don't like to talk about necessarily too often is that very often being in the center of God's will means that you're going to experience trouble, that there's going to be opposition and challenges, and we tend to push back against that. We really do. Most of us have this idea that if we're in God's will, everything's going to be really cool and wonderful, and that's just not true. That is not a sign of whether or not we are in the middle of God's will. And again, there is no perfect formula, but I believe that too often... When, when ministry gets hard, or even when life gets, just general life, you, you, you take a job somewhere, or you, you move somewhere, whatever, you marry someone, whatever it is, okay, and, and it results in some opposition uh, in life, when it gets hard, we fall too easily on that excuse, or even the rationaliz- rationalization or the justification to get out. By saying something like, this is really hard, it must not be the will of God. You see how that works? A lot of us do that, okay? And that's not necessary. If that were true, this missionary journey of Paul's would have ended very quickly. Very, very quickly. 
And then you look at Jesus and you realize it certainly wasn't true for him. Jesus prays to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he's, uh, he's crucified. He's arrested on this night and he prays and he knows what awaits him. And he prays to the father. He, said, he says, listen, I would really like this cup, this cup of wrath, this judgment on the cross for everyone else's sin, this experience of the crucifixion, which is a miserable experience, I'd like that to pass from me, God. I'd like to find another way that we could do this, but not my will, but your will be done. And then he went to the cross. That was God's will. The most difficult thing that he could have done. And as a result, you and I are reborn. We're made righteous. We're loved and adopted by God through his son. Through this difficult act of submission to this hokey trial of Jesus and to the unjust execution of Jesus, you and I get the gift of redemption. And, and, and I'll tell you, it's, it's interesting. You and I, again, we're modern people. We like to measure things. How, how do we measure things? How do we measure success in the kingdom of God or even in our lives? I, I'd like to suggest this morning that we don't measure our success in our kingdom work or even necessarily in our lives, by either hardship or ease. Let's just throw that out as a qualifier as to whether or not we're successful. And then you might say, well, how then do, do I measure it? Well, that's a good question. And I would submit there really is no formula, which frustrates most of us, I know. That fr- we want a formula. We want to be able to put things in a box, you know, uh, there really is no formula except maybe this, and it's really not a formula. It's, it's just a true statement that is embedded in all of Scripture, and that is obedience over time. Faithful obedience over time, no matter what happens. And, and so let's use that to kind of look at Paul's kingdom work, the Apostle Paul. Just, I mean, if anybody could be said as successful, we might say it would be Paul. So how would we describe his, his kingdom work? Well, well, let me try in this way to describe it. Paul got executed for his kingdom work. He was killed. He was executed by the Roman government because he was proclaiming the gospel. He was executed. He experienced many hardships. If you want to know how many hardships he experienced in his ministry, uh, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and read from verses 21 or so until the end of the chapter. He suffered many hardships, more hardships than maybe most of us in this room even combined in our lifetimes. Um, He's going to get stoned here in just a minute. They're going to throw major rocks at this guy and assume he's dead. Um, He was shipwrecked. He was whipped five times. Uh, He had personal relationship challenges. He had a hard life as a Christian. But also, he planted a ton of churches. I mean, who's planted more churches than Paul? And and he was humanly responsible, not not divinely responsible, but humanly responsible for literally thousands of conversions to Christianity. He raised a lot of money for churches. That guy could raise money. He preached many sermons and taught many Bible studies. He made a lot of friends. He discipled some well-known and hardworking people. He discipled... Uh, Timothy, 
and Silas and Titus. And he discipled Lydia and Aquila and Priscilla. Those are all significant biblical characters. So how do we measure his success with this data? We have two data lines. You could merge them together. How do you measure his success considering all of that data? I don't know that we can other than this. There's one thing that applies to all of that data no matter what you do with it, and it is faithful obedience over time. Faithful obedience over time. Now, I understand this. I'm a competitive person. I want things to happen quickly. I want resolutions fast. I want to know where we're going. Blah, blah, blah. You get what I'm saying. As human beings, we want success, results, and rewards, and we want them now. Maybe 9 o'clock tomorrow morning at the latest. That's when we want them. That's just human nature, but, the, but here's the reality, and I've been reading a lot of essays and research on this lately. I think it's interesting. The reality is that instant results and instant gratification and instant resolution actually most of the time ends up costing us way more on the backside than if we had invested more time, more energy, more thought, more prayer, and had been patient and faithfully obedient on the front end. Many of us think that time is our enemy, and in reality, in most cases, it's actually an ally of ours. It's an asset. There's an old saying, some of you maybe have heard it, the longest distance between two points is the shortcut, because the shortcut often ends up costing you more and making you to do a lot more work. Life is work. Can I get an amen? Life is work. And, and I'm not just talking about in the marketplace. That's true, but it's life is work with our friends and our relationships, our family, at school, all of those things. And the Apostle Paul understood this. And you know what? There's an Old Testament guy named Solomon. David's son, the third king of Israel, uh, wrote a lot of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. He understood this too. If you read through Solomon, you know that he gets this. I mean, and Solomon is famous for thinking about life in terms of seasons of life, and we have seasons. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he runs through a lot of those seasons, and I think it's helpful. You know, he says there's a time for joy, and there's a time for mourning. There's a time for laughter, and there's a time for weeping. There's a time to, to plant, and there's a time to harvest. Uh, there's a time that ASU wins the big game, and there's a time that U of A wins the big game. I mean, those are all part of, he doesn't say that, in, but you get the idea. It, it, but those, that's, all, that's just part of life. And one of the reasons I think Solomon does that, and Paul picks up on that theme quite a bit in the New Testament when he writes, is it's kind of a theme of agriculture. There's a lot of agricultural references and a lot of agricultural themes in the Bible. And it's a great way to look at, at life, you know. You reap what you sow. You, 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 cannot, you cannot plant apple trees and then be disappointed that avocados didn't come up. And that's true of life as well. And, and, and these seasons that we go through, these seasons, one of the things that Solomon and Paul would say is that you can't rush them. You also can't prolong them. They're just going to happen. And we need to, by God's power, understand that and be able to work through them. If you take the four seasons of the year, you can kind of even see that as a metaphor. There's, there's the spring, which is the planting season. And so you're out there uh, tilling and, and working the land and you're planting. 
And it's a lot of hard work, but nothing really going on. And then you enter the nurturing season, which would be summer. You know, now, now you've got everything set, but now you're just making sure that it's getting the right minerals and water and nurture, everything, everything's, but, and then you kind of wait for that first little plant to come up. It, it, if you saw the Martian, it kind of reminds you of when Matt Damon was planting the potatoes on Mars, you know, and you're so excited when the potatoes came up. There's the nurturing uh, season, but you got to wait and you can't rush the nurturing season. And then there's the harvesting season, that's fall. And, and the harvest is exciting and there's fruit all of your labor is bearing fruit, but it's hard work to bear that. You're, you're gathering now, and, and you're trying to maximize your return on investment. And then, there's, and then there's the season of death or rest, which is winter. Really, our problem, and we've said it other ways in past sermons, but our problem is, is that we really only want to live in the harvest time. We just want to be harvesting all the time. We always want to live on the mountaintop. We never want to experience the valley. It's, a, it's another way of looking at it. And one of the biggest challenges for us is that, it, and this is, believe me, this is not a gripe. This is just the way it's set up. And I'm privileged to be part of that hour and a half every week for us. But we come in on Sunday mornings for an hour and a half, and we get to hear the gospel, and we get to hear these truths and realities, and the other 100 and what is it, 60, how many hours? It's 166. So the other 164 and a half hours is culture telling you what it is and what it's like and what truth is. And generally in our culture, here's what the cultural gurus tell you. They will tell you, you can live in the harvest season pretty much all the time. You can. All you need are the proper tools. And by the way, I've got the tools over here, so buy my tools, but... But you know that's what culture, you, you, and, you, and by the way, you deserve to live in that harvest time all the, all the time. That's what the world tells us. They say, you just don't have the right formula, and I can help you with that formula. How many of you have been frustrated by that formula, by the way? Because it just doesn't work. It's not true. It's not reality. We are obsessed with overnight success. There's no such thing. Uh, my friend Bill Ross is famous in my life for saying this. It took me 30 years to become an overnight success. His business just suddenly popped up a few years ago. Popped up. He had been there a long, long time, but suddenly it got popular and he's doing really, really well. Okay, and everybody's like, oh, this is just brand new. No, actually, he invented this idea back in the 80s and 90s. And he's been working it for decades. I, I think of two iconic uh, people or things, you think about the Beatles and Bill Gates, you know, and again, you think about the Beatles and Bill Gates, I've experienced that, and, and generally what people think about the Beatles and Bill Gates is that they just popped up out of nowhere, they were overnight successes, so not true, so not true, you, do you have any idea how hard the, the Beatles toured for more than a decade in Europe? working six nights a week in lousy nightclubs, eating dirt to hone what they finally got to present on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964 in February. Bill Gates toiled in anonymity 16 hours a day for more than a decade before Microsoft even, even was a blip on the screen. And you think about, I was, 
I was alive and watched with my family that first appearance on the Beatles, uh, uh, on the Ed Sullivan show on the Beatles. Some of you are like, who is Ed Sullivan? <laughs> He's the original, anyway, I don't know, David Letterman, I guess. And even that's an obscure reference to some of you now. But Ed Sullivan, they, they appear, that was the thing. If you got on the Ed Sullivan show, and they did it in 1964, sitting around with my family, my brother, my three sisters, my, my parents, and, and listening to the sing, I want to hold your hand. And the, the fans were going crazy, and the, and the women were just screaming. They were screaming so loud they probably couldn't even hear the music. They were so excited. And, and I remember the conversation in the family that night was, where did they, how did they, they just popped up out of nowhere. They really didn't. They really didn't. They worked long and hard. By the way, 73 million people watched that show, that Ed Sullivan show. In 1964, I don't even know if there were 73 million people in the United States since it was probably 150 million. Okay? Paul gives us the true model for gospel living. It's a life of perseverance, but ultimately it's a life that's worth a legacy. The legacy is Christ. It's faithful obedience over time. Through many hardships, we will enter the kingdom of God. Not a prescription, but a description. And then you look at verse 4, and and you realize, you know, the gospel is going to divide people. It just does. Everywhere Paul went, the gospel divided people. It unified some, but it divided many others. But we're still in the midst of that. We're still called to be peacemakers. So more tension in the gospel life. So on to Lystra. Verses 8 through 18, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had the faith to be made, he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, now listen to this next little bit. This is really interesting. They lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. This is Romans chapter 1. Satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they, sca- they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So there's no synagogue in Lystra. Not enough Jews. There's, there's the thought that um, in the first century world, in order to build a synagogue in a city outside of Jerusalem, you first had to have 10 Jewish males. So apparently there wasn't, uh, th- there wasn't 10 Jewish males at that time. Uh, to be able to build a synagogue there. Uh, and we know that, we know just looking at history that generally ancient Mediterranean cities that did not have, uh, that had high uh, populations of Gentiles generally didn't have 
um, synagogues, which presented Paul with a challenge as to where to start. We'll see that in chapter 16 when he gets to Philippi and he has to go down to the river because that's where the Jews gathered to pray together because they didn't have a, a synagogue. But look what happens even with no synagogue. This gets really wild in Lystra. Uh, Verse 9, somehow the Holy Spirit, it's not explained, gives Paul insight into the spiritual realm. He he doesn't always have that power. Some of us will never experience that power necessarily in that way. And Paul had it occasionally, but it didn't necessarily mark his um, his entire ministry, but he had it sometimes. And and again, there's tension there as to what he saw. He saw that the man had faith to believe, but understand it was God who healed him. So faith does not heal. It's the faith in the healer, the faith in the object. What's important is what what, what, what object is it that you have faith in? That's what's the key. You can have faith in yourself, and you can't do what you have faith to do. You just can't do it. The faith isn't the problem. It's you or me. The faith is in God, and God is the one who healed him. And then you see verses 12 and 13. Zeus and Hermes were were Gentile gods, part of the pantheon. Zeus was the god of the weather, the god of the sky. Hermes was the uh, god of commerce or the economy. And apparently they were buddies because there's lots of ancient writings where, that describe them hanging out together and they would come together to different places. So f- they were friends, apparently. But here's the most interesting part of this. There's a, there's a backstory to all of this. What's go- is there something else going on there? There's a wonderful backstory to that. I don't know, maybe. It's an interesting backstory to all of this. Maybe a legend. You could call it a legend. Word had it in Lystra that sometime before this happened, maybe decades before, there was another city near Lystra that didn't exist anymore. And Zeus and Hermes had come down to that city. And when they got to the city, the people of that city did not welcome them. They did not, they did not engage them with the, with the adulation that the gods certainly would deserve. They were un- indifferent and cold to Zeus and Hermes. And so Zeus and Hermes destroyed the city, <laughs> wiped it out. And so now they think Zeus and Hermes are appearing in, in, in uh, Barnabas and Paul, and they don't want to make that same mistake. They're very excited. They want to welcome them. They want to offer sacrifices. They're going to have a party. They're going to make sure that they treat them well so that they don't get zapped the, the way this other city did. So that gives you some understanding as to why they reacted this way. By the way, what do you... What do you call the people of Lystra? Obviously, Listerines. <laughs> Very fresh breath. So. And then verses 14 and 15, Paul and Barnabas come, come rushing in, and, and, and they tear their clothes. That is a sign of grief and humility. It's a sign of sorrow and humbleness. They're coming in saying, tearing their clothes, saying, no, we're sorry you got this impression, and look, we're just men like you. You're making a mistake. We're just men. We're the ones bringing the true good news. We're the ones that, that are bringing you the message that you need to listen to. And think about the end of Acts chapter 12. There was a similar experience with Herod. When Herod spoke to the people, and they started to exalt him as a god, and Herod said, yeah. And what did God do to Herod? Worms. And he died. This is just the opposite here. Paul and Barnabas have the right response. No, we're not, we're not gods. They were polytheists 
in Lystra. Listen again to verses 15 through 18. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things. These things aren't real. They're empty. They're vapid. And turn to a living God. He lives. He exists. And there's only one of them who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. Blessing your hearts with food and gladness. There's evidence that God exists because of how your life has gone. It's obvious. Just look around. There is this evidence that God lives even if you haven't seen Jesus. And we're here to tell you about Jesus, his son. That was the message they needed to hear. It's a living God. And verse 18, they still didn't believe. Uh, Daryl Bach, who, who has written what many would say is the definitive commentary on the book of Acts. Uh, we, we were at an all-day conference with him, the, the pastors and some of the members of Redemption Church recently. And he talks about the recurring theme in the book of Acts that he calls the blindness of unbelief. That, that people who don't believe are just, that there's just, there's an unexplained blind, they just can't see it. They don't understand it. But he also said the blindness of this unbelief is like unlike any other unbelief. It, it is an unbelief that, that, that is not passive and, and indifferent. It's not like, oh, I don't believe that, I'm moving on my way. It's an unbelief that, that stirs people up to respond and to try to stir other people up and try to even in some cases violently resist the idea that there is a gospel. It, it, the gospel is unique in this way. A lot of people can't just say, I don't believe it and let it go. They have to say, I don't believe it and I'm going to do everything possible to exterminate this belief, this idea. This, it's been happening for 2,000 years, you understand. We can't escape that, um, that evidence. And, and here you go. I, I have this illustration. I know you might say it's a false equivalency. I get that. It's just an illustration that I came up for, with. It may work for some of you. Thank you. If it doesn't work for you, I'm sorry. We'll move on, okay? But here it is. It's kind of like me and this culture of UFOs and aliens. We live in a culture, believe it or not, there are people who are just they really believe in these UFOs and they really believe in aliens and, and they just can't wait to meet our brothers and sisters on the other planets and blah, 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 blah. Obviously, I'm not a believer in this, okay? But, but there's, uh, think about it. Our culture is, is partially obsessed by this. There are radio shows about this. One in six movies is about outer space, aliens, Life from other places. One in six movies is about this theme. We are obsessed. There's essays about it. And the people I've run into who believe this, they believe it passionately. They believe it passionately. And many of them, all they want to do is talk about it. They're, they're like an evangelical Christian who just wants to talk about Jesus, you know? Way before Jackie, close your ears. Way before Jackie, I dated a girl for a short time. And she was a UFO believer, man. And I mean, she would get in the car and she would just start talking about UFOs and life on other planets and blah, 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 blah. This relationship did not last long. Okay? I, frankly, for me, it would have been better if she was a pastafarian because I can get into some pasta, all right? That would have been much better. 
Okay, there, is, there are Pastafarians now, by the way. I don't know. Look it up on the internet, okay? Uh, but I never felt the need to, to you know, to like stir up all the UFO people and respond and go, I'm just like, I don't believe it. And here you go. If it ends up being true, great. Okay. And if it's not true, great. Okay. I don't feel this need to, to, to respond like this with the gospel. It's, Bach says it's the passionate unbelief, uh, blindness of unbelief. And then you look at 19 through 23. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. and having So they traveled now all the way 90 miles and 20 miles. They came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel of the city and they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls in the, uh, of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from every, for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had uh, believed. Um, I, I, this is an aside. Uh, most Bibles uh, start at verse 19 and they have the heading in there, Paul gets stoned at Lystra. I've always felt, you know... Prior to the 60s, that had a different meaning. Now it's a double entendre, okay? You need to understand that they took him and they, they threw stones at him, meaning to kill him. That's what was going on there. It's a form of mob execution without a trial. That's what it is. But there's verse 22, our big idea. Descriptive, not prescriptive, but assuredly true for all of us in some manner or form. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Again, and this is hard because I'm the same way, mostly what we want to do is we, want to, we don't want to pray through our tribulation. We don't want to pray through our tribulation. We want to pray what? Around our tribulation or pray to be taken out of our tribulation. Here's the question when that happens, and I ask myself this question. Do we believe the gospel? Because that is a front and center gospel question. When life is hard, when people are coming at us, when circumstances are coming at us, do we respond, as James says, by the testing of our faith? Do we believe the gospel? No matter how it turns out, because that's up to God, do we believe that that's what God wants? Or are we going to just pray to get out? Or are we going to run? Are we going to try to manipulate the circumstances? And we do all of those things from one time or another. We do all of those things. I, I love studying, in the past I have, I love, I love the story of the Titanic. I know it's a tragedy, but I love it because I think it's instructive for us. Um, by the way, not a big fan of the movie, whatever, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, okay. He died, by the way, so. Um, only to reappear in The Departed. It's a fascinating irony. Anyway, um, but I love studying the Titanic. I, I don't know if you know this, but... Um, for instance, um, when they started construction on the Titanic, which was two years before its maiden voyage, um, people who study icebergs, or people who do that for a living, uh, they have determined that the iceberg that sunk the Titanic, because this is the common pattern of, of icebergs in the North Atlantic, 
broke off from Greenland about two years before it got into that shipping lane and, and hit the Titanic. So isn't that interesting? They started construction on the Titanic, and the iceberg broke off and became its own thing two years before, and then they, they met. But here's the big thing about the Titanic. It was constructed with 16 uh, airtight, watertight compartments down in, in the bottom, 16 of them. And the way it was engineered was that you could flood four of those compartments, four, and, and the ship could still float indefinitely. It couldn't steam anywhere, but it could float indefinitely. Indefinitely. Do you hear that? How long did it take the Titanic to, to sink? Three hours. Because most, if not all, of the compartments got, got filled with water. How did they get filled with water? They saw the iceberg, and what did they do? They started to slow the ship as much as they could and turn it. That was their mistake, believe it or not, was trying to avoid the iceberg. When they turned it, they, they didn't hit it straight on, but they ended up underneath the surface of the water, scraping that iceberg, which is very sharp. It just started to cut a line right into all of those compartments. That doomed the Titanic because they tried to avoid the trouble. And the people who have studied this have said very definitively, if the ship had just hit the iceberg straight on, if they had pulled back as much as they could on the, on, on the speed, they wouldn't have been able to stop in time, obviously, but if they had just hit, can you imagine that? If they had just hit the iceberg head on, it would have been a big bump and people would have been thrown. There would have been bruises and broken bones. Maybe a couple people die, but only the first one or two compartments would have filled with water and the ship would have just sat there until the rescue ships came. That is a metaphor for life. When we try to pray ourselves out or around the tribulation, we're missing what God might have for us, what God might be able to do for us, and it might even lead us to death and destruction when we try to get around our tough situations. Peter says, don't go looking for this stuff, but when it happens, pray that God would fill you with a spirit, which he will, to endure whatever that might be. Do we believe the gospel? Do we believe the gospel? And yet, even in the midst of all of this, verse 21 tells us, in spite of all that happened, they were able to establish a church in Derby. Disciples were made. And consider, you remember that map. From Derby, it would have probably been pretty easy to just go from Derby back to Antioch, Syrian Antioch, where they started. That would have taken three or four days. It would have been very easy to do that. But no, what do they do? They decide to turn around and go back and revisit every one of these cities and churches where they were asked to leave. Why? Why did they do that? Because that's what good disciplers do. They sacrifice for the disciple. Good disciplers will sacrifice for the disciple. And one of the things that makes this so powerful and challenging is that Luke says this was an encouragement. <laughs> All of the tribulation they went through was an encouragement, an encouragement to the disciples they were visiting. So you look at that last little bit, 14 through 20, uh, I'm sorry, 24 through 28. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, so finally now they, they stopped and proclaimed the gospel in Perga, the port town. They went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they, had been commended to the, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared that God had done all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door to faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. 
Verse 27 is a remarkable testimony. It's just, it is absolutely remarkable. They fulfilled the work. Think back now to chapter 13, verse 2, which was 18 months earlier. Here's what it says. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, Paul, for the work to which I have called them. And now the work has been fulfilled for this journey. That's a great celebration. The church needs to celebrate its victories. And they did. They celebrated and they told the stories. But I will also tell you, verse 27 reminds me of something that Josh Prather, one of our elders and the head of uh, Community and Global Initiatives for Redemption Church, he says this all the time. And I'll tell you, it's, it's kind of like eating broccoli. It's good for you, but you don't necessarily like it unless there's a lot of butter and salt. But you get the idea, okay? Here's what he says. The Holy Spirit often takes us further than we want to go, doing things we might not think are wise into areas of life that are decidedly uncomfortable. If you know Josh, you know that's a great description of his life. And really, that's the life that we're called to as Christians. And, and, and those further places and doing things that we might not think are wise and, and a life that's decidedly uncomfortable, you don't have to leave Phoenix to be able to have all of those things happen. Phoenix is a great mission field. We live in one of the greatest missions field, mission fields you could ever live in. You don't need to buy a passport to be a missionary and to do this work and be called by the Holy Spirit. We can do it right here. It's a remarkable thing if you think about it. Jesus dies for us, and then he gives us the Holy Spirit to fill us, to be able to do these things, to go further than we want to go, doing things we don't think are wise, and, and, and doing things that we are uncomfortable with. And because of that, we should be grateful. So let's be grateful. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And for, again, for all that you've done through your disciples, the people you call, your filling of your Holy Spirit. We're thankful for that. Uh, we pray that we read, we, when we read these passages, that, that we would take truth from them, but we would also take encouragement from them. As Luke says, that we would be encouraged by these things. So fill us with your Holy Spirit and take us further than we want to go, doing things that we don't think are wise and into a life that's decidedly uncomfortable because we're doing it not under our own power but yours. We thank you for that and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.